Hello, welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, your host, Andy Rintmore. We have John Nelson with us this week. John has a 30-year career in humanitarian issues, in conservation, and most notably in conflict resolution. John has worked with tribes in Africa. He's worked with local governments in Southeast Asia. He's worked with a whole variety of people throughout his career. We talk about bushmeat. We talk about Ebola. We talk about speedboats made of trees. We talk about car crashes we talk about uh being held up in the middle of the night at gunpoint we talk about all kinds of things we talk about africa's rich natural resources and we talk about the future of places like the congo uh it's been a really really interesting conversation i hope you guys enjoy it here it is Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Hello. yeah. Oh, that's much better. That's much better yeah. for me. I can hear it much better now. Okay. Wonderful. So, <clears throat> oh, Harry's going to hate me editing this of all this fucking noise. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, what? one thing I've learned, because, you know, I got myself a little Allen and Heath. I broke in middle of thing. I wanted to do some recording, and I thought I'd try to do the show from home. Yeah. And I bought uh, uh I can't remember, a couple hundred, 250 pounds, big investment for me. Yeah. I bought a uh, Allen & Heath board, mm. uh, which meant I can plug in my turntable, CD player, uh, computer, and I'm away. Right. And microphones. But it has six inputs total, but I can do those other things as well. So, so you're all set up. You're ready to go from home. Yeah, but... Yeah, that's another that's another discussion about time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I'm sure time, you have time, exactly the same thing. Time you have management. Time, you have time management. You have work. Yeah. And then you have things you want to do. Yeah. And then you have life, like family and friends, and and time is at a premium. Actually, I'm not. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm time poor. Are you? Yeah. I actually, I put these things like this before family and friends. I hate to say it. No, I think, I, just, I think, I think, I think, I think that's good. Like I, I make time, but I'm, yeah. but I'm not, um, you know, like the, you know, on the show friends, all they do when they finish work is just hang out and drink coffee and yeah. get up to things. Yeah. That's not me. Well, I don't do that. I enjoy yeah. that, but I, that's a waste of, you know, there's things to do. Yeah, done. no, I agree. I mean, I, and 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 also for me, um, one of the things I learned because I was on furlough for three months, yeah, because I couldn't, you know, my whole program disappeared, uh, and I realized actually, I don't like wasting money, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> suddenly you realize, actually, I got no money. Are we recording it? We are recording. Okay, I like to stick it on. Just get some. That's of the fine. Back. Is it because we'll. 
Yeah. Usually when you go, oh, we're on. I can't hear you. We're, I can't hear anything from you coming through. Really? Oh, no, you're coming through the other side. Ah. ah. Just oh, make sure you're about a fist from your face with that mic. There we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're pretty okay. sensitive. So. That's good, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And that I'm sure whatever Harry of... got is excellent quality Harry. Yeah, oh, this is, um, <laughs> yeah, this is the industry so, standard. So I got, well, what I, what I ended up doing is getting some task cams. Yeah. But with little mini stands that came with them, so I got books stacked up. So you can, <laughs> <laughs> but these are much better. I got to get some of these ones. Yeah, day. these are. Um, I mean, we're not sponsored by Rode, but these are Rode arms. I don't know what the range is, what they cost. I don't know. Um, but they uh, they do the job. They do the job well. I like them. Yeah. You can get some really fancy ones. Oh, you, you can want. spend as much as you want on these things. Yeah, yeah. That's it's, that's that's for sure. That's that's what I discovered. But. Um, yeah, so, but doing it from home is great because I wanted to do it so I didn't have to deal with the studio. I had to, didn't have to ask anyone. I could do it at our own convenience. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have to do it live. I could, you know, editing. And so if you get it going really well, you know, first four hours, no flawless. And then, then you get a thing where you screw it up and you have to do some editing. And, but that's fine. But for me, it's really the time. And actually, I like playing the albums mm. and listening to the music and working it all out. Uh, just as much as I do like broadcasting it. Right. You know, I really, I just like... Just finding the I music. I just mess around and the things I've found are so good and, um, you know, God, the things I, I mean, the th you know, I've, you know the, even that, still here in Froome, you find things. You know, you find a sleeve. Yeah. And you've just pulled the sleeve out and it's like ratted and it's not even the sleeve that belongs to the album. And I pull it out and suddenly it's this gem from 1980 <laughs> from Peru. Right. And someone just shoved it in and got rid of it. Yeah. You know, these little things like that come along and, you know, Red Sovan from Grand Ole Opry back in the <laughs> 1970s. All those weird ones. Anyway, it's, for, me, it's a, for me, it's a real diversion from other things. The monotony of... Uh, the work. Yeah. Well, it's not the monotony. For me, it's, uh, you know, the work is... The world is a terrible place, actually. There's some really bad things happening out there. Yeah. And um, looking for results never clear yeah the results are going to come right that's ambiguous well <laughs> were you going for a philosophical approach there no 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 i mean <clears throat> i mean the thing about it is is that uh, there's so much uh well are we, are we started yet yeah 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 oh yeah oh yeah Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the key thing for, I mean, for for, for the stuff I, the stuff <laughs> I'm recording? doing. Are we starting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shut up! I'll just shut up now. No, but that, for the for the work I do. Yeah. Uh, it's all over the world. Yeah. It's uh, it's sort of on its face. It's like oh, there's a little conflict grievance with someone. Yeah. Oh, it's the company's fault. Uh, it's the community's fault. Uh, it's the the government's fault. Yeah. And then you go in and, and so then there's the media story that's yeah. out there, what actually is happening. And then you go into these situations and you find out actually what is happening. Yeah. And then you're trying to, trying to find a pathway through with all these people, with all these differing interests and motivations and history, which they bring into those conversations. Yeah. Uh, and also their aspirations, what they want to be. And you get, a, you, know, you get a toxic mix where actually, even if you, sometimes you realize it's not what you thought going in that was the cause, it has nothing to do with that. It's actually something really simple like this family and that family or this uh, traditional leader yeah. who is ripping off his community. 
And it wasn't actually the, 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 what everyone assumed it was these baddies from outside who came and exploited them. Actually, no, they've been exploited for the past 50 years by this guy right. and his dad. Yeah. Who keeps them in poverty and uneducated. So, and so you see these, and so for me, and then I look, and I look at the solution, and then you think, and then you start to sort of looking for ways of sort of making the situation better. And, and then you get political interest and start meddling. It becomes election season. So then senators, you know, I can move from country. So I, I right. can talk about Sumatra. Yeah. And then I'm talking about Liberia. Yeah. And then, then Liberia, it's election season now, right, right. now. Okay. So they're, they're, <laughs> they're good, you know. And when election season happens, everyone who wants to run for, to be in the Senate. Yeah. They go to their population and they start making accusations. I'm going to defend you. And they exploit the information gap that local people don't have information. They're, it's easy to manipulate them in a certain way. And they do that. And everyone thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to support that guy because he's going to take us out of this terrible situation. But he's, he, actually, he's causing it for his own interest. Yeah. And, and then I... And then I <laughs> <laughs> then I will look at our government here. Yeah. And then I look at, uh, you know, across the pond, you know, where I'm from. I'm watching, I, you know, that's, that's a country I don't even understand anymore. Right. And so you see it all, it's happening everywhere at all these different levels. It's like what I was telling you, that David Lynch quote, where he drives down the suburban street and in every house he passes, he, he says, you know, there's a drama uh, as complicated and disturbing in many ways as any other drama in the next door house you go down the thing. And if you don't, maybe you don't look in this generation, you look generation back. Right. Um, and actually I sort of feel like that about some of the situations I'm operating in. So that is a good time for me to, to ask you what your official job role is. Because I'm not sure even I know. Like I kind of get what you do and yeah. I know it's fascinating but it seems quite ambiguous in many ways. Yeah, no, that is a problem because for years people say, you know, so what do you do for a living? And then that's difficult to explain. Yeah. My job title in my current organization that I'm working with is um, a mentor. Right. And I'm a mentor uh, uh, on social issues. So I, I'm supporting field teams all around the world okay. who are dealing with conflicts between companies and local communities. Right. And helping and trying to get and trying to help companies set in place systems, you know, these internal systems within their company so that when they do their work with local people, they comply with international human rights standards. Right. So they're legal because they operate legally in the countries, but the, we, we're trying to bring them to actually meet the, the high standard. They don't steal land. They don't, right. they don't push development on local people without their consent they, uh -huh. there's a conversation there and there's a whole there's a there's a whole body of international law there yeah which should be protecting rights but is not applied in these countries right even though the countries themselves have signed up to all the conventions and should be doing it uh -huh. they're doing that they've signed up for all kinds of reasons but basically we're trying to help the com companies protect rights and we're talking about palm oil companies uh uh, companies producing rubber. These are plantation companies, logging companies who exploit forests for timber, mining companies, conservation projects, which is really big now. Everyone's talking about conservation and they want to, they want to protect a third of the globe and all this. Well, that is where I started this work out, actually. Right. In the, in the whole conservation area because I've been working in conservation for so long. Um, 
So that that's so so my what is my job? I'm I'm a mentor. My job title is mentor, but I'm really uh, supporting communities and companies to resolve conflicts, but not just doing that, trying to set in place systems and standards so that the conflicts don't arise, yeah. or you know they're coming and you anticipate right. them and try to resolve them. And how do you anticipate them? Because you've seen this happen elsewhere. Is this an experience game? Well, yeah, I think in some ways it is an experience game, but also sometimes it's totally obvious. Right, yeah. I mean, it's totally obvious. If a company... Obvious to everyone except them who are so too close to it to see it coming? Or, or do they know it and they call you in and they say, look, this is going to... Usually when I'm involved in these processes, it's usually really bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I've reached that level of experience where when I'm working on situations, it's usually pretty dire. And actually, it's usually after the fact right. that actually problems have been call, uh, you know, caused. And in the past, it was... In, so I've had two roles. In the past, it was me working with campaigning organizations yeah. trying to... F- respond people going they've stolen our land they've beaten me up they've thrown me in prison for no reason and then we respond to that and then look into the situation and then try to help them put pressure on companies on conservation organizations to protect their rights so please please conservation organization that has a you know a panda bear in your fridge please don't pay uh, eco guards to come into my village shoot my dog and search my house right uh because that's a real problem. So then we would end up starting to talk to them and find out what the real problems are yeah. and helping them uh, get in a negotiating position so that they could actually protect their land rights, stop atrocities and human rights violations from happening, uh, and, um, and also trying to convince the conservation organization what they need to do to do things properly. Right. So that's what I used to do. And then now, in the past you know, few years, I've been sort of working with companies on that, on that front. So I'm actually talking to the companies. So that's sort of what I do. I mean, that's, that, it's, a, it's a weird space to be in because I, I don't just work in one location. I'm working in lots of locations in South America, a lot of, mostly in Africa, and, and some in Southeast Asia, places like Indonesia and Malaysia. So this is quite a unique and extraordinary career, isn't it? Um, I mean, I you're the only person I know that does this. Well, yeah, no, it, it, it's kind of an odd thing to, to end up having done. <laughs> it, it, but, but it's by circumstance, but it's also sort of by, in a way, by intent, because I always wanted to, I, you know, I'm interested in places. I want to go to these places. And um, for many, many years, I've been able to raise funding with lots of donors to do really good work. So I've had the freedom to go to a lot of different places and, and people, you know, people want someone to analyze situations where they don't know what's going on. And so it's just what I've ended up doing. I mean, I, I ended up in it almost by chance. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you end up in a... Well, I grew up in a small town in Ohio, right. in northeastern Ohio, where you've been. I've been. I've, yeah. yeah, I was. Uh, um, I played there. Yeah. I played in a, a town called Mansfield, yeah. which is home to my friends in uh, a hardcore punk band or slash metal band yeah. uh, called Dive Bomb. Shout out Dive Bomb. <laughs> Dive Bomb, yeah. No, I've um, heard of them. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was an interesting spot. I don't want to, um, I don't want to say anything really like negative about it. Yeah. Because everyone there was very sort of very nice and welcoming to yeah. us. In fact, one guy was outside 
telling me that, and he was really emotional. We were outside in the snow after we played. Yeah. And he was he was quite a big guy and he was almost in tears. I would say he was borderline sobbing that saying, Oh, it just meant so much to him that um a band would come to his town. Yeah. Because he'd never even left his state. You know? Yeah, well, when I so I grew up in a small town not far from Mansfield, actually. I mean, we're right on Lake Erie in northeastern Ohio. Old, it's Rust Belt. Yeah, basically that is it, Rust Belt, and it looked like there once was a community. Oh there yeah, and something going on, and it was just almost felt like a shell of what it used to be. That that is precisely what you just said. There is precisely what has happened, right? And actually, for many ways, is why Trump is there. Yeah, because when I was growing up. These places were beautiful, small town, friendly, low crime, uh, you know, beautiful countryside, mostly farming, small manufacturing, working class. Um, and then over the 30 years I've been out of the country, well, even longer now, 32, 32 years, 34 years I've been out of the country now, um, now that I'm a British citizen. Uh, all, so much has happened because all those industries got sold out, yeah, sold off abroad, and all the old sheet metal, steel manufacturing, all that just is gone. A lot of it has gone, and yeah. it's left in its wake. Uh, a lot of poverty, a lot of unemployment, a lot of crime, and drug addiction. Yes, yeah, yeah. and major problem: drug and alcohol addiction. Some of these beautiful, iconic American towns, heartland of America, you know so-called yeah and actually it's been completely abandoned unemployment rates are through the roof my sister lives in southern indiana on the ohio river in a victorian town it's so beautiful yeah. bars on the windows everyone's house is alarmed really because of the you know there's 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 um <clears throat> there's meth there's fentanyl there's all that sh stuff all over the place and yeah. it's just it's you can destroyed. swear you, you're gonna say you can swear on this no but but so so anyway so i so anyway i went from there to university and yeah. did economics and politics and then i was going to end up working for a bank because that you know you're going through the interview what do they call it they, here they call it the milk round you know the companies come you interview and degree in economics i'm going to work for a bank and i was really depressed right so I walk into the careers office. I'm totally depressed. I just don't. I've had all these interviews with banks, and they ask you things like, "You want to be in uh, commercial banking or uh, retail banking?" And I'm like, "I don't want to be a banky at all, actually." Uh, but that was the, you know. And so, and then I spotted something to volunteer to go into something called the Peace Corps, which is like VSO only without the skills. What's the VSO? The Voluntary Service Organization of the UK. It's like uh, a voluntary program. I see. Where they take like you teach geography. Why don't you teach geography in Kenya? I see, yeah. Whereas in Peace Corps, they say, you've done lots of different stuff. Why don't we come up when you, know, you can be a volunteer and live in a village and do something like water or something else? Isn't that known as volunteerism? It is a bit, but you know, in, for, for me, it was JFK set right. Peace Corps up. And it was this noble, noble idea about uh, uh, this is going to give a chance for our young Americans to go out and learn about cultures abroad, but also share our American culture with them. And then the third thing, you know, let's do some development. Let's help these people, you know, to, and, and so the idea is great and it, you know, it was, a, it was a good thing to do. And it was actually, I, I saw it, I thought, yeah, fine. Uh, maybe I'll apply for that. And, and I was the first person who'd ever applied from the university where I was. So I got in, ended up in Mali in West Africa for several years. And that's how, and, and, and there I was living with communities who had the cost of the state on top of them, and were being forced to do things they didn't want to do, and sort of that sort of 
that's where I got sort of hooked in a way. Right. Because, you know, I'm, yeah, it was all around conservation and reforestation and, and uh, trying to look at these farmers who are in these marginal environments. You know, can you imagine 300 millimeters of rain a year? It's like nothing. And they're trying to grow millet in 90 days. And some years they only get 80 days of rainfall. Right. You know, an 80-day season overall. But, you know, that's not quite enough to get millet to produce. You need like 89 or 88, or, you know. <laughs> Seriously. And so I was like on that margin. So, I, so that's where I lived. Uh, you know, I lived there for a few years. And then I ended up, I ended up um, from there moving on to other things and ultimately doing what I do now. Always within that conservation space, natural resource management, but always working with communities to try to help them manage their lands over time, increasingly helping them defend their lands from others who want to take it off them. Right. And that's where, and so there's a lot of conflict in that space. And that's how I ended up. And this is not done, when you say defending land, this is not done in a combat context, is it? This is not a militia no. or mercenary type thing. You're talking about a political... It's a political solution, but often yeah. it's, it's, it's a political solution, but it's often, it's often about institutions, but it's, it's often a political thing. However, you know, I, I remember in 2000 when I was in Rwanda with a meeting with indigenous peoples uh, from seven different countries, from all these conservation project zones, where basically the conservation project, like a park, national park, basically the state sets it up really beautiful place, let's protect this. They set up a park and they make rules that no one can enter without permission, nobody can use that space, but they set up the park right on top of people's lands. Right. People who are pastoralists, people who hunt and gather, like the so-called pygmy hunter-gatherers of Central Africa, the Bushmen of the Kalahari. So I'm sitting in a room with all these people and we're having a discussion about that. They, you know, doing case studies and looking at, you know, how to use standards to negotiate. And one group was actually looking at the group from Eastern Congo. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, we're thinking we should do what you guys have been doing, taking up arms. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is not what we're doing because yeah. that's never the solution at all. Um, and, and then, so that's 2000. In 2020, just a few weeks ago, I've been doing some training online with people from across Central Africa and one guy from Nigeria was, I was saying, he was explaining a really difficult situation he's in. Um, and he was explaining, I said, so who's in the community? And he went through the community. We have the heads, we have his advisors, we have the leader of the women, leader of the young. And we also have the vigilantes. And I was like, Whoop. <laughs> what are you talking about, vigilantes? Well, he's saying that every community of 400, 400 500 people, they've got 15 guys yeah. who are the guards of this community to protect the goods of the community to stop people getting ripped off and just generally control security. And it's a little community thing right. because like in the Delta state of Nigeria, it's really dangerous. People are armed and um, they're under pressure. Yeah. So for me, it's not about the guns. It's about the dialogue. Yeah. And actually finding the solutions. People, people use guns when they run out of options. I see. People, people block the road from the logging company or vandalize the machines of the palm oil company when no one's listening to them anymore. Yeah. Whereas if you create a space where people are talking, the talking cure, that you can avoid all that conflict because it's 
it's you know being open and transparent. So you're a diplomat in many ways. No, I'm oh. not a diplomat. But right. <clears throat> no, I'm not a diplomat because uh, I represent no one. I see. Right. I represent no one. I and in when you're working with communities, what you want is the communities to represent themselves. So you got to explain to them how best to represent themselves, or help them within their own traditional institutions decide how they're going to represent themselves, but make sure they represent their whole community in a strategic way. And on the other side, you know, when I'm talking to companies, I'm never, I'm not representing the companies because we are a third party. We are trying to help those companies. So we're almost convening, yeah. but facilitation, whatever you want to call it, it's, 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 about the, it's about the process, and I don't work alone. Right. I'm always working with teams of people and groups different characters. In my present organization, we have local groups, local teams, yeah. who I collaborate with on, these, on some of these things. In other places, it's just us. We make up a team and we, we give long-term support remotely, like some of our work in Democratic Republic of Congo, where, where we don't have teams on the ground, but I've, I've worked a lot all over that country. And I guess you build up a, a, a sort of metaphorical Rolodex of people you've worked with, there? Is there, have you made any like friends or um, associates there where you can call them up and say, "Hey, I need you to do me a favor. Can you do X, Y, Z, this well, and that? Can well, you give it, this person a call?" Well, we we do that all the time because we're we're trying to get people to connect. We're also trying to get people to be honest. Yeah. The biggest problem we face is people are really don't trust each other. Right. They don't trust each other, and because they don't trust each other, they make up stories about each other, uh-huh. and because they don't talk, so they don't know what the other's doing. And I see that you know, all over the world, where people, because of the lack of trust and lack of, communica- lack of communication, lack of trust, uh, manipulative characters in the community and outside the community, it generates this air of mistrust, which means that it's difficult to move into a trust situation where you're talking and people won't talk. And companies are completely paranoid about, often about talking to local people because they think they're just going to be attacked because yeah. they don't understand. And communities themselves are just suspicious of companies because companies keep themselves closed. Or conservation organizations who only care, who can tell you about where the elephants poop all over the forest, yeah. but are often completely unaware that those same forests are being used extensively by local people and have done so for a thousand years. But yeah. they, but they just they they regard all local people as poachers, right? When some of them just, I mean, well, they're the, hunting and gathering a, on a subsistence yeah. level, and they've done so for thousands of years. That's and, what I was going to say. On a subsistence level, um, they're not. Yeah, they're part. They they've been there for so long. I guess they're part of the the ecosystem there. Well, I you so could argue that. I mean, they're part of the rhythm of. of they're part of, of the, the rhythm because yeah. they fought their culture. So if I'm so if I if I talk about one very specific group, which is actually a large group across all of Central African rain, tropical rainforest, the what colloquially called pygmy communities or pygmy yeah. peoples, but that's a that's a Western term been imposed upon them, and it has lots of negative connotations. Right. There are lots of groups under that mantle. There's the 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 Baka, the Aka, the Babangeli, the Batwa, the Twa. You know, there's a huge range of different indigenous groups yeah. all across um, Central Africa, but mostly so-called short-statured hunter-gatherers, right. traditionally, so as opposed to the Maasai, who are the herders of, uh, 
Tanzania, who are your height. Yes. Or the Senegalese, actually, the pastoralists. Uh, they're incredible. They're, they're, they're really tall. In, 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 in this group, they're, just, they're, they're genetically distinct from the farming populations who are out there. They're, they are a group that you see and you think, okay, yeah, I see. You are, you are Baka or Aka right. or Twa. And um, you never they call hunt. Them, you, what's the word? Pygmy. I mean, sometimes they'll call themselves pygmy, but each one of these groups, they have their own name for themselves. And so what, where does the term pygmy come from? Is it, cause, is it literally, is it quite literal? Like, it, like pig? it is, it was, it was a, a term that was developed by the West right. to describe this short-statured people who lived in the forest and hunted and gathered. Okay. And who have these incredibly uh, flat societies, so there's no, it's very difficult to find who's in charge. <laughs> and if they, if you go and say, "Can we see the chief?" They'll give you the oldest guy, <laughs> yeah. who absolutely has zero power over anyone. Right. Yeah. But everyone thinks, "Oh, yeah, it's just like the farming community. The chief make a decision, everyone will follow." Well, no, 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 no. Right. What you have to ask for is who's the best hunter, ah. and then you get that person sitting there, or who's which, which of which of your of the ladies know where to find that these uh, the root crops, right? Or or seasonally, who does the fishing? And those people step forward, and they're leaders within their society because of their knowledge and experience. Right, but I see. actually, politically, they're really flat. And they've been criticized for that because there's, we don't know who to negotiate with, and they're everywhere, and they're chaotic. And also, every time there's a conflict, they just disappear. Well, and when they, you say and disappear, you mean they just go deeper into the jungle, do they? Well, or? yeah, they're, they're, they're these huge forest areas that they've lived in for millennia. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the, the, the most productive forest areas and the oldest, most richest forests of Central Africa, uh, you know, you'll find those populations still there because even when it went to savannah and back to forest, they're still in these locations. Um, and they usually, they have a, the, it, within the culture, uh, when the community gets to a certain size, you're living on top of each other, there's conflict starts to rise, there's also illness comes. Right. And so communities, traditionally, when there's, when there's a conflict within the community, they'll divide. And some will go this way, some will go that way, because it makes logical sense. The carrying capacity of forest for hunting and gathering is only, you can only support so many people per 100,000 hectares. So you could have right. 150, 200 people in a community. They need 100,000 hectares of to, land to, to, eat to eat properly. To eat properly, because sometimes some seasons it's fishing, sometimes it's hunting. There's berries, there's nuts, there's other foods that come out, leaves and everything. Yeah, and so it makes sense to divide. So actually, and because they're wheat, they're small populations, and they're always on the margins of general society. Yeah, if and they get exploited a lot. Right, enslaved, oh. and so when there's a real problem, and they get real problems with like the farming population nearby. They just pick up and leave because that's their tradition. Right. Everything they have is temporary and they have very few possessions. So that is the word transient? Is that right? Nomadic, semi-nomadic. Nomadic, right, yeah. Rather than transients. And, I was and they're within defined territories usually. Right. And I was going to ask you, is there sort of racism? Uh, I don't know if that's the word. Racism within those those parts of the world when it comes to, to them? Because yeah. like you said, if they live well, on the outsides of these communities and they are so different looking, we know, unfortunately, that this often leads to discrimination. And The general population in many of the countries where, where these um, uh, forest hunter-gatherers, indigenous peoples live, the Baka, the Twa, all these groups in Central Africa, they're treated like, um, they're very badly. Right. They're treated like animals. They are referred to as monkeys. 
by the farming populations who are also, you know, African. They're, they're Cameroon, they're from Cameroon, they're from Congo, whatever, you know, there's, but there's been this historic relationship that's developed where they would bring protein from the forest in exchange for carbohydrate from the fields. Right. So they've always had this relationship of exchange. Yeah. Um, but they treat them badly because of their, the way they live, because they've no, because they don't, they don't, they don't really, you go into a, a Baca house, there's no possessions. They own a, the clothes they're wearing mm. and some tools like a machete. And they have a t- culture that, because if you go out and gather nuts and seeds, when you come back to the community, you generally share it all out with everyone. Yeah. And they do that with everything. So none of them actually ever have any money <laughs> because, because the automatic reaction when you meet someone is to say, what did you find? And they go in their basket and everyone shares. Yeah, even on the trail in the middle of the, in the jungle, yeah. you'll meet another family come by and we'll be with the group and they'll have a conversation. There'll be a quick exchange of goods that they found on the way, a little bit of honey because we saw a tree back there and we'll have some of those. And, and then they'll go back to the community and they'll share it out because that's, it's a sharing culture. You know, right. the, hunt, the hunters came back with meat. So they're going to share it with the community because it's a group of hunters and maybe only one of the hunters gets something, but you know, there's a sharing tradition. Right. So they have nothing and they're I, treated badly because they don't make beautiful houses, they make small huts. Right. And, and, and do they share because they, they understand that you know, sometimes when you're out hunting, it's just not your day? Yeah. And you might come back, with, you know, you're not going to let the guy that comes back with a small, what do they traditionally hunt for meat? You name it. Okay. Is that like boar, pigs? Or is well, it pig, more yeah, pig, for, pig in a season, porcupine, uh, these small um, doiker, these tiny little antelope. Um, right. Uh, you name it, they'll, they'll, they'll eat it. Um, but it's seasonal, and often, often the hunting is not good. However, their biggest problem is poachers. Right. They've all, they're always being treated by poachers, by conservation, but their biggest problem is commercial poachers who come from the cities and put a thousand wire snares out in their forest, yeah. and then there's nothing left. And so these people really starve. So they have a really big interest in conservation, yet almost all the conservation organizations have basically driven them out of the forest and turned them into enemies of conservation which is a madness that yeah. has engulfed the world. <laughs> and that, in fact, that's where, that's where I started this story in 2000, was you know, you know, asked to go and look at this problem and see if we could get these really great standards. Are they being applied? And these human rights standards, are they being applied? And we found no one's applying them. They're just basically putting guns and guards in the forest, chasing people out of the forest and putting up boundaries. And these are nice conservation organizations funded by really nice people. Most people who love conservation are nice people, yeah. but they just don't understand... They have no way of understanding where that information's, where the money's going and right. how it's being used in bad ways. So for me, that was a revelation because I come from a conservation background. My, my whole, you know, my, my childhood was all about conservation. We, and we traveled around the States going to national parks and part of the nature clubs and all that. The conservation was a big thing of my life. Right. And then to go and discover some of these great, so-called great conservation organizations are doing this because they're almost, col- it's like a recolonization of land. So British Empire yeah. and all the empires, they colonized places and took lands and did what they wanted with it. Well, that's gone in a way, but you know, now we have conservation. And the other big colonizer is these big companies coming in, acquiring huge tracts of land from governments who sign papers and say, help yourself. And how do you stop that? Is, it, is that through corruption? 
in governments or um, are the countries in which these governments are operating so poor and indebted that you know they take these deals in? I don't know. We could look at the Rocky Mountains. Right. Or the Smoky Mountains, rather, in the United States. It used to be filled with um, sheep herders and poor farmers. The state decided to get rid of them to make a park. Yellowstone National Park. Yeah. They used soldiers to drive the native population out to create the park. Did they? Yeah. And that's actually, it's really interesting because also most of the legislation governing parks across Central Africa and West Africa are based on Yellowstone National Park model. No use. No use at all. It's like right. a temple. Yeah. And actually these are the spaces people use to hunt and gather. So the way, do you, the way, you, stop, the way you stop that is what has happened is that over time at, at the international level, human rights has come about. Human rights has gotten legal, a legal basis and legal protection and ratification at global level and all the countries have signed up. So we try to use those standards to help these people get themselves out of a bad situation and become part of the management of these parks. Yeah. And we use the same mechanisms to... Uh, and company, companies now are realizing they have to comply with human rights. So we're using these same international mechanisms to encourage companies to actually set in place systems which ensures they comply with the international law because they don't want conflict with local people because right. it's disastrous for companies to have a conflict with local people. It, you know, Hundreds and hundreds of millions or more of money has been lost because companies have done the wrong thing. It's been exposed. The share price is tanked. The whole company's gone bankrupt. And so I'm assuming that they pay good money for guys like you to come in and, and seal it up. Well, they could pay good money. Ah, okay. But, it, but what, it's a really interesting thing because some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, you know, when you talk to the, them about why, you know, your, your company is actually causing problems. Why are you not, you, you say you're committed to complying with human rights standards or whatever, you should be solving all these problems. And they say, well, we only have this much money because they're heads of the companies. It's all about share price and the bottom line. And so they're willing to put in so much money into these kinds of, this kind of work, but they're not willing to put in the full amount required to resolve all the problems because they're, they're, they are seeking profit. These you know, companies are profit-making industries. In the conservation world, it's different because most of them are they're not profit-making organizations. However, the people at the top of conservation organizations get paid mightily, right. huge sums of money, particularly the North American ones. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the European and North American uh, ones get paid absolutely mountains of money. Yeah. And the whole thing is set up about protection. And increasingly, it's about making sure that not only that forest is good, it's getting, it's getting better. Right. Because that's what we're telling everyone, that that's what we're doing. But they don't, they, they don't like dealing... The problem with people, people don't meet timetables. People don't always agree with you. And actually, they're really, it's really complicated. So my space of working is like the area where they, they don't know what to do often because people, a lot of like, um, local people don't want these things in their, on their lands. I don't want that palm oil to take our land, that palm oil company to take our land. I don't want to give it up for rubber. I don't want us to lose our forests where we hunt and gather because um, a few 
wealthy people in America want to say that they've protected this vast area mm. who pay for guns and guards to drive us out. So is there never any situations where these people get sort of bought out? Yes, all the time. And is, and that, what, is, is what, that ethically dodgy? Or can you say, well, they've been given an, an offer and they've accepted it. But I guess if you don't accept it, the other, the other option is... Well, and the only thing I can ever do with people is to say, if it was me, yeah. if it was me, I would not take this deal because of X, Y, and Z. Or right. if you're going to take this deal, make sure you have X, Y, and Z in it. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of situations, what the com- community companies will, or companies will come back and they'll divide the community. They'll say, well, we'll give some payments. And about half the community who are really poor go, yeah, we'll have that payment. And it divides, suddenly you got the, the community division, which companies can use and they can exploit that to... Evil. That's evil. But is it, it evil? And that's the thing, this evil thing. You, you say these people are evil, and that's why I get all the time, oh, miners are evil. People who run palm oil companies are evil. Right. Loggers, oh, they're really bad. Actually, if you meet, I've met hundreds and thousands of them. Yeah. And I've not met many, I have met evil people. Right. Make, make, make no mistake. I've met evil people. I, would, I, would, most I of want them, to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> most of people are not evil. Most people are thinking about, oh, I got my job. I got to do this. It's a bit complicated. I don't have the authority to solve that, but I'm told to do this. And I'm just trying to pay for my life. And my kid is in school. Mm. And so I'm trying to do the best I can within the framework I'm sitting. And I'm not in charge. And then you have other people who see all the problems and what they do, they, they try to change it within the, within the conservation organization, but it's really difficult. Or they try to change it within the company, it's difficult. Or they go out and they set up an organization to campaign on it. Right. But they go from steady income in company to working for themselves with unsteady income and really difficult work. And increasingly, in my line of work, human rights defenders are being killed. Right. So people are being murdered. Across South America, we've had a number of murders quite an increasing number over the past few years. Um, and in, in Southeast Asia also, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, we've had people killed. And when you say we've had people killed, do you mean people from your organization? Not from my organization, but right. when I, I, it's part of, <laughs> I say we, because it's all of us who are working to try to right. As a expose the yeah. issues, but also to try to resolve them. And, but there's been some, there have been some prominent local people killed, and there's been one or two international people killed. Okay. Uh, and can you give me an example of is, any is there is there a famous one that we may have heard about uh there there have been lots of well, like there, there, there are high profile ones but you know we have them where uh a company people start to complain they start to organize and then the main organizer um is filled with bullets on the steps of the courthouse in in, in, I, I don't want to talk about details, but in South America, right. in, a South, in yeah. a Central American country, and, and maybe where you have uh, another group from the company grab a, some NGO activists who've come up to find out about all these human rights abuses we heard about, who get tied up uh, and held by a crowd with sticks waving petrol tank cans at them. Right. So and and or you have um, someone who in, in in I don't know in in Central Africa, who is a journalist or an NGO activist who who's exposing major 
corruption in, in, in essence, but also stopping the plans of the powers that be who suddenly is taken into custody and is found dead. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Uh, and so, I mean, that, 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 happens. that and, happens. And and a lot of the work we've done in the past, when I was part of teams with Greenpeace or whatever, you know, we're going in undercover in a way, but we're also, we are facing menaces from the soldiers on the road, the policemen, because they're all paid for by whoever. So, you know, that happens. It's a dangerous, it's less dangerous for someone like me, but to be someone local trying to change things, it's, that's, those are the ones who are incredible heroes. And heroines, actually. So I was going to say, you know, you're sat here in front of me now. You've got all your fingers. You've got your limbs. I can't see any scarring of any kind. I don't know about my neck? Have you had your neck cut? No. Well, I had my neck cut by a wonderful NHS surgeon Uh. (laughs) because I had a slipped disc in my neck because of a, a car accident in Central African Republic. Oh, Okay. So I, lo- I was losing all the um, feeling in my left arm because I had a prolapsed disc in my neck, which was pressing on my spinal cord. And it was due to, uh, I was, we were heading from Bangui, which is the capital of Central African Republic, down to the southwest corner uh, to this place called the Zanga Zanga uh, uh, Wildlife Preserve mm. National Park, I think it is. Yeah, Zanga Zanga National Park, and I was heading down there for work with um, with Aka, with um, with with um, so-called pygmy communities, the um, the Aka from Central African Republic, and we were having a process trying to help them on a whole discussion complication. Anyway, that's another story. But when we were heading down there, the driver was, I think, he was in a hurry. It was getting late. We were trying to get there before sunset. He was driving too fast in a car that wasn't very good, and we headed down a hill. Mm. And at the bottom of the hill, what they have is these are dirt roads, right? And the 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 bridges are one lane, right? And they're like logs, logs with planks across. So like logs, logs running the the span, the width, and then planks across. So you you hit that. And we are heading down the hill towards this at the bottom. And then I look up, and you see a fully loaded loaded logging truck with logs. You know, you've seen them. Yeah. Stacked, also coming down the hill. Oh, God. And normally, all, my, all everyone else I've been with, drivers, they would say, hang on, and they pull over. Yeah. This guy you know, stomped on the accelerator to get past, which he, which, so we got, so we got across the bridge just in time to pull over so that Lori could go by. Yeah. And then try to get back on the road, but the road had a camber, so we started losing it. Yeah. And then the car ended up, leaving the road, leaping a ditch, which was about six foot deep, into the forest, yeah. and sit ended up stopping suddenly, very yeah. hard, which is why I did my neck in, sitting on top of a stump uh, that, was, <laughs> that was as wide as my arms. I'm right. a big guy, so over six foot stump, yeah. which I was so happy that the loggers had cut that tree down. <laughs> <laughs> and we were sitting, perched on it. Yeah. So what do you do? What's the medical care like while you're well, in the Well, no, I didn't know places? at the time what I had done. I was, oh, just, okay. I, was, you know, I was just glad to survive, and we did our thing, and I did a mission. And then I went back, and suddenly I realized I was having this issue. Right. So, that, so apart from that, yeah. So you were going back to your question. Well, I was going to say, you don't, I know you said you've got your, uh, your lovely NHS scar, yeah. which I wouldn't have noticed because our NHS is so bloody good. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you don't look like you've got any war wounds. 
or yeah. anything gnarly. Um, so you must be able to talk yourself out of some pretty good situations or mostly, sorry, some pretty bad situations, not good situations, you must be good at talking yourself out of bad situations. Yeah. But I don't know if this means you're a good talker or that people are generally pleased to see you. I, I'm, I, I'm guessing that 20 years experience, when you turn up to a new village or a community, you can size everyone up pretty quickly. Yeah, and, but, and who, but who not to turn your back on? It's all about it's all about how you are and right. being humble and being normal mm. and not being secretive. Yeah. So so I can't. But it, you know, there is this this whole concept. People have this terror of places. I don't know where they think it's all chaos and you know Africa. It's all this conflict. Congo, Congo, perfect example. Everyone thinks Congo is just war, Ebola. Uh, danger etc etc and violence and it's and the point is is that it's well yeah there are those elements there because you got people mostly men doing this to each other but the vast majority of people are peaceful they want peace the huge civil society you know they have churches they have schools they got kids they want the kid you know so actually it's an incredibly safe place to be when you're with people yeah it's when the the real dangers are planes falling out of sky what well, because that's the, the biggest danger. The biggest, the number one danger I face when I work is car transport. Because you're on dirt roads and you're going long yeah. distances. About you know, so I travel maybe four months of the year, and half of that time is movement, right, from place to place. And I'm either in um, cars mm. on dirt roads, which are always often really crappy, uh, planes, which can be really crappy, and in places like Congo, they're not allowed to fly outside the country because they're blacklisted, because they have no safety, because they can't prove their maintenance, and they crash a lot. Right. Quite a good record of them. Boats. So boat, speedboats along the Congo River. I you just bouts for a second. Boats. There. No, boats. boats. Like, speed bo- like a speedboat, yeah. like one place I go to, it's, it's a day to get to one city, and it's another half or six hours to get to another city in the central Congo. And then the next day you get into a speedboat and it's six hours high speed down the river to get to a location to do some work. But six hours on the Congo River when the weather can change really quickly and the waves can become, but also you get logs floating. So you're on a high speed powerboat and you can hit, if you hit one of those logs, you don't have a good driver, you know, you got a big problem. So those are all the dangers I face. Once I'm in places... As long as no one's pointing guns at me, I'm fine. Right. Talking of guns, you, you told me a story. I don't know if you can... Uh, yeah. You, you want to share this one? Well, I don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about, tell me about that night. Well, no. So, so, so that was the story I was telling you. You know, I was trying to get a sense of what you watched. How, how deep you want me to go on this stuff. But, I mean, you know, so lying in a, in a hotel... In Cameroon, after a 12-hour drive, you know, down dirt roads to get to the place, on our way somewhere else with a group of us, um, uh, and exhausted, fall asleep, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, my door is broken down with two men holding pistols at my head, screaming at me. Um, 
they screamed at me. I screamed at them. They screamed at me. I screamed at them. <laughs> what did you scream at, at them? They screamed at me. I screamed at them. And they said, if you scream at me again, we're going to shoot you. And so I shut up. <laughs> was it just screaming? Like, oh, my God. Like, oh, my God. Get out of here. You know, you know, I don't know. I was completely panicked. I was dazed. I was confused. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You're in Sounds your underwear terrifying. in a bed. And, and, you know, these two guys are standing there with knives and, and pistols pointed at you. What I didn't know was that they'd been robbing every single room in the hotel. They'd come at 3 o'clock in the morning, bashing down doors, taking everyone's possessions, asking where the Europeans were. Because there was a party, and there were two of us. There was a European woman who was a journalist, and there was me. And then there was the rest of the group that we were traveling with, all Cameroonians. And, and uh, so one of, my co- one, of, one of my co-travelers, a Cameroonian journalist, had jumped out of the hotel, his first floor, climbed down and gone to find the gendarmes. Um, and, you know, so they knew this was happening, but they were, they were coming for me, and they thought, I, we think in the end, they thought I was um, somehow in charge of a logging company or bringing the pay for the laborers. Right. So Which they is, thought you had a lot of cash on you. I thought you. I had a lot of cash, and I, I, I had cash on me, but it was only enough to cover my cost for, you know, a sort of four-week trip around that, that region. And, uh, and uh, really... What was really funny about that was, you know, it was quite terrifying. I was mostly worried about the, the handmade gun. There was a handmade pistol <laughs> and a military forty-five pointing at me, and I thought... You know the forty-five. Well, I thought yeah. it's the handmade one with that young kid who's just holding, waving it around. I thought, right. I don't, you know... Yeah. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe it was just a made-up gun. You know, you don't want to... It's the gamble, isn't it? You don't want to, you don't want to gamble but that. The, but the best bit it was, next door to me in the same hotel was a magistrate who... It's like a, a magistrate. Ma- a magistrate's well, like, well, I know what a magistrate is. I, I know one, but um, but, but what, what, what's a magistrate? Uh, an English magistrate? No, no, no. A Cameroonian magistrate oh, okay, doing right. the tour, so holding sessions around the country. And he he'd been in a hotel that had been robbed once before in the same way. <laughs> so when he heard it was happening, what he did was he took all his possessions and money and put them on a the table. Then what he did is picked up his mattress and put it up against the door of right. his room, and just stood there holding it. And so while they were shredding my bag with their knives, looking for cash and threatening me. They were also trying to kick in his door, right. which they could break the door, but they couldn't get to the mattress because their foot bounced back every time. Right. And so that was, that was all going on next door to me while I was sitting there, you know, naked in bed with them cutting up my <laughs> luggage, finding my laptop, not knowing even what it was, and then walking off with it. So, yeah, so that, but, but, you know, for me, that was 20 years or more working all around Africa. It was the first time anything like that happened. How, how long into your career was that? Well, it was, that was, it was, I think it was really 20 years, probably, I think that was back in 2007, 8. Right, so you had a, you quite and a I, experience. And I, you know, 1986 is when I went the first time, and I've been, right. you know, I've been always based in the UK, going back and forth, and I've traveled extensively all over, you know, 50 and countries. that's the only real trouble. Well, you know, I've faced a lot of guys with guns. Right. But they're always within a framework. Where okay. they're like a soldier at a checkpoint. Yeah. Or standing in Kinshasa with a soldier walking up with a submachine gun who walks up to you and says, give me $10. And you say, no, I'm not going to give you $10. And they go, okay. And they walk, they continue on home because they're walking home. Right. Or walking wherever they're going. Um, you know, it's just ubiquitous. I mean, that kind of risk is there. But on the whole, on the whole, they're, um, it's not dangerous. Although I think it's getting more dangerous more guns out there okay and where are these guns coming from 
That's a big question. Uh, well, it's a big question, but <laughs> yeah. you know, when I so when so that region from uh, Cameroon to Central African Republic, you know, at some stage, they found a whole container load of military gear at the border heading into Central African Republic. You might have seen Central African Republic in the news recently, in the past five years or so. There's been massive conflict there, and it's being stoked from outside, and people within within with outside are you know throwing money in because they want the right leader in power because then they get access to. The, the the diamonds right. of Central African Republic. Is this blood diamonds? Is this well, ultimately blood it will be when uh, the contracts for the concessions have been gotten through ill-gotten gains. Right. Um, there's not a there's not a civil war going on in that border region at the moment, but you know wherever they're you know that's the problem with Africa. It's too rich. That's why it's so poor. It's it's Africa is so rich right. that it's been kept poor. It's like a paradox. It's been kept poor because everyone of the world is interested in what's there. Right. And they're all competing for those. And because between, between aid and business, I mean, they're prop, propping, you know, there are leaders in Africa who are there who should not be there, but right. they've been propped up by aid. Okay. And the aid is there often for political reasons rather than the real reason of poverty alleviation. And then you have companies pouring money in to get access to natural resources like gold and tantalum for mobile phones and all that. So when you say Africa is a rich country, you mean in its... A rich continent. Rich continent, sorry, yeah. In, in, you mean this in its um, resources, in what's in the earth, what's in the, in the, you know, the natural resources. Yeah, natural resource-wise, Africa's, you know, really, really rich. It's got incredible coal reserves. It's got massive iron reserves. It's got just about every rare earth that you want, although right. uh, different countries are searching those out. It's got uh, cobalt. You, you know, it's all there because it hasn't been exploited over thousands. You know, for, for a lot of it's been unexploited. One place in on the border with Cameroon, Central African Republic, it's essentially a uh, a mountain of... Iron, pure iron, 95% iron. Oh. And all they got to do is blow it up, throw it into a train, and get it into a smelter, throw it in, melt it down, make stuff. There's no processing required because it's 95% hematite. So it's like right. pure, but it's 500 miles away from the coast. And there's yeah. no railway line. When you go there, you trip over a stone and you really hurt your foot and you pick it up and you realize it's, it's just a piece of iron chug. I've got one sitting in my office at home. You know, right. it's like it's an incredible thing. And you think, that's just weird. Other yeah. places there's cobalt, you know, where you you know, you put a piece of metal down and it picks up soil. Like you take a metal pan and you put it down, you pick it up, it's got soil all over it because it's magnetized. Right. You got oil. Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo is like floating on this huge puddle of oil which they haven't been able to exploit because it's internal and the country has been in such a bad mess. And do regular Africans, are they aware of this? Yeah. They know, and they know the sort not, of, they, not, they not your a average... grasp of the political, the geopolitical uh, game that's being played there? Well, I think, I think it depends on the country. Many countries, they are aware of the geopolitical game. Right. Um, other places, they're not. And in rural areas, a lot of people have no idea what's, what's there, only what they know. One of the places I like most of all is a place called the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is one of the largest countries in Africa. It's right across the central belt. What I love about that country is that everywhere I go, people have a sense of their political history. Right. Really strongly, because they, first of all, it was colonized by the Belgians. They were enslaved by the Belgian king, Leopold. 
and then and 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 then and then they've had so much meddling in their country from foreign powers. They they know about it. And Lumumba, the first prime minister of Congo, was was killed. And it's well documented that foreign powers were involved in getting rid of him because he was a, you know, he he was a bit too closely aligned with uh, Russia at the time. When was when was he killed? When was this? And when was he killed? Would I this guess have it was been back the Cold late fifties, late fifty, late fifties into the sixties. I'm not sure. It's terrible that I don't know the date Lumumba was killed, but it's like around that time. Right. So Cold War. It's just post independence Congo, maybe a sixty one, but you know, and they they're proud of that history, and they're really sophisticated politically, and in general. All communities I go to, not not all, but most communities you go to in Africa that are of a reasonable size, 500 to 1,000 people, they have a lot of political sophistication in there that you would not know because everything is managed that way. Right. The written law is fine, but it's actually how, it's about relationship management and they're all experts. That's fascinating. It is, it's really fascinating. Um, touching on what you said about them being very aware of their history, uh, I saw an episode of Parts Unknown of uh, Anthony Bourdain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did one on the Congo. And I think I texted you while I was watching it because I was thinking of you while... Where did he go? He, well, he went to this place. He was down, uh, down river somewhere. Mm. I know Congo's a, a big place. Uh, and it was uh, an old... Um, like an old library slash sort of radio broadcast center, sort of almost yeah. like a government e yeah 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 sort sure. of place, and it was it almost <laughs> run down. And there was a there was a group of people whose jobs it was they don't get paid to do it to maintain the books in this, oh, in this right. place, and the books were rotting, and they would go to all these. Uh, Is in Congo? Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, and what, they were which, maintain, trying to maintain this building, which is dilapidated. Oh, no, but this is the biggest problem because the public sector in so many of these African countries is so weak and poor, and they're not, you know these places just linger yeah. thanks to local people who take care of them. Yeah, and they, they're really up against, they're up against nature, the ravages of time with these materials, which tell their history. Uh, and other important things that I don't know about. <laughs> well, um, no, but uh, just the whole concept of a library library is so inaccessible, such a remote idea to most um, the people I work with. Right. A library, you can borrow books. There are books there, really books. And you can touch them without owning them. You know, it's like uh, for... And, and the I think the history, like with this five, this six-hour speedboat journey I talk about, it's one of the tragedies in Congo where you could go on this this journey and you pass by all these incredible industries that were there in the colonial period when people were being oppressed, but is also a period that people talk about affectionately, like when things worked, we had promise, we had aspiration, we had uh, possibility of economic growth. They're all just decrepit and empty and beautiful, these incredible research institutes all about agricultural development of the whole region who are just just falling to bits and all the equipment, all that intellectual knowledge disappeared because of the chaos of all these civil wars because Congo has faced multiple massive wars and conflicts, civil wars. Um, and still overcoming that, you know, in Eastern Congo, it's terrible. And then Ebola. Yeah. And now COVID, but they're all set up for COVID because Ebola, every airport you go into, got temperature, 
ther- thermal cameras checking you as you walk in. Wow. Is Ebola, is Ebola really still that big of an issue over there? Well, they don't want it to move. Is it still there? It's endemic to Congo. Right. So last year when I was in Congo, we were in the province next door to where the outbreak was, but we were upstream. So it was okay because we didn't feel that transmission was going to leap from that province to where we were because traffic was all heading downstream. Okay. And then that outbreak's gone, and then another one appeared in the east of the country, and then that was abated. And then another one appeared in Kisangani, another place. Right. And so it's just around because it's endemic within the wildlife population, bats and gorillas also. In northern Gabon, they've been tracking uh, Ebola within the gorilla population. Wow. Apparently it's moving something like 30, 40 kilometers to the east each year from that population. Right. So it's a different strain. So this is through wildlife. You obviously have no, no idea what's going on. But people eat bats. Yeah. So... And, so and they're just passing bush it around. Bushmeat bush is gonna one ask of the main about, protein. Yeah, I was going to ask you about bushmeat because you love a bit of bushmeat. Well, I love, I mean, I, I do like bushmeat. I like, I like meat and, uh, and I like flavorsome meat. <laughs> and also in a lot of the places I go, it's, there's nothing else to eat. Right. Um, so how do, you, how do you weigh up that risk of this might give me Ebola? Uh, you cook well, it. I don't eat bat. Right. I don't eat primate. I don't yeah. eat elephant. Elephant's not really subject to Ebola, but there are right. lots of things I don't eat. I don't eat, um, I have had pangolin, but I don't eat pangolin because what it's an endangered that? pangolin. It's like an, almost like an armadillo. Right. Um, but, you know, I'll eat anything else, really, because most of it is what everyone else is eating, and it's the best food, because otherwise you end up eating sardines. Yeah. Um, a gift from the people of Norway, you know, that sort of thing you can <laughs> buy in a shop. And, you know, and I've... I'll eat anything. I'll, uh, here's here's a really good story. Right, of eating. <clears throat> One of the places I had to go to, we had to fly to the country, fly up country. So there's two days. Another day driving down to another place, and that, that's three days. Fourth day in a boat. Fourth day in a uh, a cutout. Um, you know, a pirogue, basically a, right. a tree hollowed out with a power with a with a outboard engine to go across a lake <laughs> for about three and a half hours across the lake then we hit the river yeah then it's two hours up the river until the river got too shallow where we <clears throat> the boat gets parked the engine gets locked up in a little shed someone guards it then we walk another four hours through the forest in occasionally getting water up to our knees sometimes up to just a little bit above our knees right. as you're walking into the swamp forest to meet a big community. And then you appear, and then suddenly there's this incredible community of a 1,000 people with wonderful homes that they've built out of things from the forest, big houses, and they're farmers, and they've got incredible gardens. And, of course, this was a community that during the day, the era of, of slavery and it was a terrible period in Congo. People fled to the forest and just created, they went to a swamp forest and found a little dry place in the middle where no one can get at them. And this was one of those places. And so we'd been, we'd taken food with us. So we'd had some bread, which is all going moldy. And we had sardines, which is just, you know, food, but not great. Um, and so in the morning, I was standing outside a little hut that we'd, they'd offered us to stay in because we were having meetings with them about, about conservation, actually. Right and about their land, which was being taken over by conservation organizations. Uh, and some guy, some young kid, sh- shouted at me. He said, Mr. John, Mr. John. And that, he said, look what I caught in the trap. 
and he held up, and it was a bush rat, which is so it's about it's about that long. It's about right. so it's about two foot long with the ta- he was holding the tail, uh. and then two foot long body, uh. big chunky thing. Right. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, well done, well done. But it's a bush rat, so it's like a I guess it's like a groundhog or something. And anyway. Yeah. Great that he disappears. I finish brushing my teeth outside. We sit down for breakfast in this sweaty room. Yeah. Sardines for breakfast. Uh-huh. Can you imagine like it's about, it's like 85 degrees, 80% humidity, flies buzzing around, and you open a tin of sardines. Can you imagine what that atmosphere is like? <laughs> yeah. Inside of like a mud house, and it's like you're sweating, and it's, it's like morning, and you're like, oh, geez. But you need it. You feel yeah. it. And anyway, the mama, the mama from the household comes in with this pot steaming. Yeah. Shh. You know, steam coming off, and said, and she says something in Lingala to the guys I'm with, and they say, John, <clears throat> you know that rat you saw earlier? She said she's cooked it up, and she wanted to offer us some of that for us. It's like a really generous thing to do because right. that's like food for the family. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'd love that. So of course, the, the, she comes in, she hands it all out, and they, of course, I, I'm given. They choose a piece for me, which is like the big piece because I'm the honorary guest and everything. Right. So I'm chewing away, chewing away, and you know, I'm eating and eating, and it was delicious because I was so happy. Finally, nothing, you know. And, yeah, uh, some sustenance. Some sustenance. And I, you know, when you're eating a piece of meat and you get to a point and you just chew something and we just won't chew. Yeah. You can't get through it. And you're I chewing get beef and sometimes. chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing. And uh, I couldn't get through and couldn't get through. And anyway, in the end, I just thought I got to give up on this piece. Everything else was finished. And I didn't, so I pulled it out subtly and looked at it. It was the anus of the rat. <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, they gave me the back haunch, which was the biggest thing. <laughs> And the biggest piece had the anus with yeah. it. So, um, you are the honorary guest. You do get the butthole. Well, why not? You know, it's like uh, whatever. But, but, <laughs> but I'll eat anything. When you're hungry, you'll eat anything. And actually, it's perfectly healthy food because it's, 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 you know, people here want healthy food. Yeah. Eat forest rat. Right. Delicious. Very healthy. Right. Very sustainable. <laughs> do you think, I was going to ask just a quick question, trashy question, but I'm going to go for it. Uh, the primate in the bushmeat menu, um, close to cannibalism. So, depends on what, well. I mean, it's a way. It's how you think about primate. So you can think about like um, monkeys, right? Monkeys for me are a bit like squirrels. <laughs> monkeys, right? Not chimpanzees, right? So they're a slightly different class, and so, so you see monkeys, monkeys are around. Smaller. Yeah, but I don't eat monkey either, right? And they're, they are a primate, but, but when you look at them and you look at their, they're almost, you think, squirrel, monkey. Right, I, yeah. Because they're small, they're I'm a little wiry. You. You know? But primates, when you start eating them, yeah, but for me, the big issue is about the transmission of disease. It's very easy to move from primate to human. Right. <clears throat> and so my wife, who's a, a health journalist, <laughs> has exposed me to a lot of literature around that. And I, so it's quite clear to me it's not safe, but I don't like it. I don't like it, and I, you know, there's, you know, like gorilla. In some of these places, people are eating gorilla. Um, and in some places, it's like the power guys who want to eat the hand of a gorilla. Right. You know, like the big bosses. And these are, these are appalling things because gorillas, <clears throat> I've seen lowland gorillas like, you know, 10 meters away in places where they've habituated them. <clears throat> they're, they're, like, they're like family. They operate in family units. They're... You know, you look them in the eye. You yeah. Know, I'm sorry. You're not going <laughs> to... There's, not, some, you, you there's know, someone th- in there. There's someone in there, but also, um, if you're not careful, they'll rip your head off. Right. Because they're so incredibly strong. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, it is a bit like that. But, you know, for me, it's about, you know, I don't want to eat. I don't want to eat that. Yeah. I yeah. don't want to eat that. I think, that, you know, and I, th- and forest, particularly forest elephants in Central Africa are under such threat. You know, you, they, they need to be protected. Their habitat has shrunk. Uh, the same thing with a lot of these primates. Um, and actually, there's things, the, the things that you want to eat are like the, like, you know, things we eat here, you know, groundhog, you know, rodents and stuff like that. Rabbit. It's that, that equivalent where it's just around and it's all the time. But in a lot of places, you, you have no choice. It's, it's, either, it's either that or fish caught from the river. Or snake. Right. Oh. Or alligator. Right. The, most, the greatest number of uh, endangered species I ever saw at a table <laughs> right. was at the behest of the minister of the environment of a particular country. Right. So he, is he a dignitary? He's in charge of protecting all wildlife. Oh. <laughs> I see. Right, and he's and, that, and, and that, he's got this this. But that that's the, the contradiction. This buffet of uh... that is the contradiction of these places. It's these. It's the people who are in charge of. You're putting the wrong people in charge of. These things, you know, you're putting you're putting thieves in charge of the bank, in some countries. And there's no accountability, and there's no, there's no transparency, and you have uh, judicial systems which which don't really operate very well. So actually, the chances of people getting caught are slim, and the chance of people getting prosecuted are really slim. And so you've got that—that's the chaos. I mean, on the whole, the, the, the most people out there—they're just trying to survive. Yeah. And there's a tiny group manipulating them and exploiting them. And I see—I see that there. I see that in lots of other places. And but there it's so stark because people are so poor. This is the, the, the problem for a lot of these people is they're watching DVDs yeah. of European films, uh-huh. six hours flight away, and they're looking around at their mud and wattle houses. They're drinking, bathing, and washing their clothes from the same water source. No electricity. It goes dark at six thirty or six fifteen whenever the sun goes down every single night, and they're thinking, "What happened to us?" Right. They're like you. They're, yeah, yeah, they're like you and me. Yeah, yeah. They really are. They, they want to educate their children. They want to move on. And they don't understand why. Yeah. That must be. That's the reality. And that's my, my biggest frustration with the work has been, I've been doing it for so long, 30 years. I've been keep going back to places. Trying to, and, I, and I'm not seeing, the biggest evolution is access to the internet. Right. Which is changing people's possibilities in a really good way. Mm. Because suddenly they're finding out that who's ripping them off. <laughs> suddenly they're finding out what their rights are. Yeah. Suddenly they're finding out that if I sell this, my, my crop in that market instead of the other one over there, I make 50% more. Yeah. Suddenly they find out all the cocoa uh, transporters and purchasers who come out to their little farm are totally ripping them off, paying them like a tenth of the value of their crop. And just because they have a pickup that's jacked up who can make it over the hill, they get the total profit when they get it into town. 
Right. And these are just peasant farmers who've done all the labor, cleared the land, planted the thing, done everything, processed it even. Yeah. And all these guys do is pick up bags and they transport them and they just make all this cash. And they suddenly realize, actually, and now the big, one of the, no, the main requests I ever get in community meetings, of which I've done hundreds, is like, we have all these agricultural goods. How can we get them to market? Can you provide transport? I mean, that's the thing. They, they were, you know, people come in wanting to talk about human rights and they're saying, okay, okay, we'll talk about human rights. How can I get these <laughs> to the market? Because <laughs> yeah. I'll make loads of cash and I'll be able to um, educate all my children this year. Yeah. Because Africans generally spend a huge proportion of their income. Can you imagine spending 50% of your income on educating your children? Well, um, it only happens here we're really for very bl- wealthy yeah. people sending them to public school. Yeah, really quite lucky, aren't we? But it's really common in Africa. 50% or more of, people, of people's salaries will go to put their kid into private schools to get them educated because they know that's the only path out. They don't want to put them into the public school because it's so poor. But even a public school charges in the poorest places. That's, I find that very difficult. So it must be an incredibly rewarding but also extremely frustrating career path. Uh, it's not financially rewarding. <laughs> uh, it's rewarding. I don't like that concept of it being rewarding, but I do think I, I, I get a lot more out of my work in places than they get out of what I've done sometimes. A lot of times, I think. They, right. they would maybe deny that in some situations, but... Because what I like about my job is I learn every day. Yeah. You know, like I said, this morning, the, today I spent the day learning more about land tenure rules in Sarawak, where we have a big project which is happening. And we've started off and it's going well and huge possibilities there. So I love that. And, you know, if it wasn't for COVID, I would just be coming back from there. Right. Uh, if it wasn't for COVID, I would... I would probably be, be on that speedboat going down to the place in Congo right now. Yeah. It sounds like it isn't just sort of work to you. It's, uh... Well, it, 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 is work. it is work. But I know, I'm, I know I can be impactful when I'm yeah. there, when I'm working with people on those projects. But for me, it's really who wouldn't want to go to these places? If you're willing to take the risks, yeah. who would not want to go into... Uh, northern Kivu in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and sit at 2,500 meters in the cool air looking over the most beautiful lakes. Fantastic. Most incredible environment. You'd want to move there. If it was anywhere in Europe or America, it would be the most expensive place to live. Unfortunately, it's on the border, be- it's on the mountains between bordering between Rwanda, Uganda, Burundi. There are militias out there who occasionally come in and kill everyone in the village. Right. So it's and a really beautiful place. Why is that? Well, that's the whole war of Eastern Congo, you know. So you could go back to the um, Rwandan War, uh, the, the, when, they, when uh, all the Tutsis were murdered, a million Tutsis were murdered through the, the Rwandan Civil War back in the 80s, 90s. I can't remember when it was then. And then the, well, it's complicated, but then the Hutus... Um, after the uh, Tutsis came in from Tanzania, uh, the, ex, the expatriates came in to save the population and took over the government and took over the army. Then the Hutus, who were the other tribal group, all fled to eastern Congo. 
And then there's been this back and forth battle ever since with these remnant forces who are sometimes also supported by Congo. Sometimes, you know, there's a whole, there's, the problem is they fled into a zone where you get all the tantalum for mobile phones. There are massive gold reserves, there are oil reserves. So uh -huh. people are trying to have feet on the ground. Too. So there's, there's a lot of war and conflict out there, but it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. And if you ever have a chance to go to Eastern Congo, Andy, you go there, <laughs> just don't get killed. That's beautiful. I mean, you, you go down from, if you go down from uh, Goma to Bukavu, you have to go across a lake. Yeah. And you walk down there and you walk down to the port, you can get a coffee, which is like best coffee ever because they grow coffee there. Right. Then you get into a, uh, a sort of transporter speedboat, which holds about 30 people, which is from Italy. So it looks like you're somewhere in Lamalfi, right. you know, going for a ferry journey because they bought it from Italy and it's sitting there in the lake. And then you zoom across this incredibly beautiful lake with mountains around you to the other village. Last time I, last time I went through Goma, uh, I left and a mortar came into the town from outside, from one of the militias. Oh. So, you, you know, last time, last time I went, I went to Beni, and then we went off to the Okapi Wildlife Reserve because to do a survey of the local population and talking to them, and, and we laughed. Yeah. And a week later, the place where we did the interview, a couple of the interviews with the communities, a militia came out of the forest, stole everyone's possessions, took all the women with them back into the forest, carrying all the goods. So the whole community, yeah, all the young girls were taken, and it was like a week after I was there, it was all fine. Yeah. Wow. And then people, but then they live. These people live that reality every day. So they'll point out, oh, that's where the general got killed last month, and you'll see this burned-out shell of a car. Right. And they have to live with this every day. And that's the thing about the most amazing thing about these people, because they do, they survive. Yeah. With good humor. <laughs> you can't have good humor. Well, they do. They have, they, yeah, humor is essential. Thank you so much to John Nelson for being my guest this week. You have been listening to The Giant Pod. Go check out the show notes descriptions for links to uh, the organizations that John works for. You can also leave us a review, like, and subscribe. Please follow my antics on Instagram at, at Andy underscore S1S. You can also give Harry Williams some props for producing this episode. And I will see you next week on The Giant Pod. Thanks very much. <laughs>